Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Movie Magpies. This week, this is the in-depth discussion as we talk about Knives Out. As always, I'm your host, Will, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Monique. So without any further ado, let's just get straight into it. And I wanted to get into it with, of course, the warning. This is the in-depth discussion, so ultimately, warnings for spoilers for Knives Out and ultimately warning for depictions of death and conversations based around death and immigration and various things like that. Mostly it's all conversational, It's you don't really see too much in this film that would be considered visceral or violent or graphic, but ultimately this warning is there, we want to warn you just in case. But I also wanted to start out with, if you don't know what this film is, and you want to hear the in-depth discussion. Monique, what is the summary for Knives Out? The Netflix summary for Knives Out is a detective unravels the tangled web of secrets and lies surrounding the death of a successful crime novelist and his unsettling eccentric family, which I think we spoke about this in our review is pretty one-to-one with the movie, yeah, it's of a very course, without giving away the plot. Yeah, absolutely. But I wanted to open this podcast with, so this is so far your favorite film that we've reviewed and i wanted to I quickly truly start out i love this film yeah i wanted to quickly start out with why is this so far your favorite film of our pod- you know you think that as a reviewer of films who has done this a couple times now i would know the answer to that question <laughs> but truly i just think it's funky like If I really had to say, I would probably say that it was because of the just inherent passion you can feel about it. Like, everybody in this movie feels like they're having fun with their roles. It was made. It's not taking itself too seriously. It just, like, it's not just enjoyable as a movie because of how well the plot is done. It also just feels like the people acting even the people who were directing, making the music. Like, it just feels like everybody was having a good time. Yeah, and definitely this film has this presence of a production that was a great deal of fun, for sure. I do get what you're saying there. And I would you agree that a lot of this does leak into the film in a sense that it creates a atmosphere within the film that it just doesn't take itself too seriously, despite having a serious topic. Yeah, and I think that's another thing that I really love is that there is that sort of levity in this where there is a bit of a jovial yeah. discussion. They really are making it as palatable as possible Absolutely. while also still remaining true to the mystery genre. And and like as a result, would you agree that it kind of allows this film to present as very approachable to a lot of audiences, not just people who are interested in mystery, but people who like a little bit of comedy, a little bit of intrigue, a little bit of humor. People specifically like a certain actor and they're in this film. Would it scratch the same itch for these people, do you think? I believe it would. I mean, we've already established that I am probably going to be incredibly biased in this Hmm. review. But I truly do think if you saw, of course, Benoit Blanc, I never remember the actor's name. So horrible of me. Thank you. And you were a fan of the Bond movies. You would come into this one and you would see him really enjoying playing almost a more whimsical role. Yeah, I think this is definitely a perfect place to expand out to the characters and talk more in depth about them. But I genuinely think that Benoit Blanc is one of my favorite Daniel Craig characters that he's ever played. He's having so much fun. Yeah, and I, I genuinely feel like this character is... It brings a lot of the same acting beats that Bond does, or at the very least Daniel Craig's Bond, except it's completely turned on its head where Benoit Blanc is this jovial and incredibly compassionate character who finds joy within solving mysteries, which is so delightful to watch, and it makes me want so much so, like, ultimately this film has been confirmed for two sequels. Oh. All really? The, yeah, all of them with Benoit Blanc solving different mysteries, and I'm so looking forward to that because I really like this character because genuinely I think he lights up the room. He does, and you can just... Not only is the character having fun and finding joy in solving mysteries, mm. you can really tell that uh, Daniel Craig enjoys playing him, 
And that's yeah, sort of absolutely. why it's so easy to believe that he finds joy in these mysteries is because he just loves playing this folksy lad with yeah, this southern. interesting act. Yeah, the southern role, who is just incredibly switched on and ready to solve yeah, and observant. And what I really love is that his character is very much whimsical, like you said, but none of Daniel Craig's kind of famous intensity is lost either, because you have scenes in which he talks to Marta where he still carries that intensity that basically made his bond so interesting, but he can also carry heartfelt and emotional compassion in a way that you don't expect to see from someone who's played Bond for so long, and a very dark and serious Bond at that, and I love it. I love it so much. Like, and genuinely think, to watch it's so wonderful, because Yeah, seeing, it's seeing almost it, refreshing, in a way. Oh, absolutely. Seeing him be so stoic, and I think I even said, let, let him make more expressions. Yeah, <laughs> like well, there's just... one of the things, it's like, I think, genuinely believe that Daniel Craig smiling and it feels like a very genuine smile, not like an actor smile. And I love it. I want to see more of it, honestly. He's just a funky little dude solving mysteries, and we love that for him. Yeah, absolutely. And as we're still talking about characters, I know we want to talk about Benoit a little more, and we can as we talk about his interactions with other characters. But I want to also just say that one of my favorite actors currently, uh, Lakeith Stanfield, as Detective Lieutenant Elliot, I think he brings a very wonderful balance to Benoit and also, where is his name, Trooper Wagner's kind of over-the-top excitement. And it really, it really grounds the film because if we just had Benoit Blanc and Trooper Wagner in this film it would feel too for lack of a better word fluffy and floaty yeah and I think it's going to be really interesting now that you've mentioned that they're getting sequels mm. what they do to have that balance in character because are these going to be set in the same I don't know how American geography works uh, I want to say county in the same county I don't know if that's correct we are both Australian so ultimately we're not going to get American states or counties correct yeah but if uh, I know it's not specifically that a lot of the scenes were filmed in Maynard Massachusetts well what I mean by that is that's a place. A, yeah fi <laughs> it's a place all right yeah. fictionally will it be in the same area will we have the I same cops or will yeah. they have to bring in different police forces because yeah. of course we've already been told that Benoit is more of a PI type yeah well he's a person. he's a detective for hire basically a yeah famous detective exactly. for hire yeah so it would be interesting to see him cover different states or even different countries but I don't expect them to go beyond America at the very least. No, and really what this sort of rabbit hole was leading us down is just how exactly are they going to bring the same levity if they're not using yeah. the same police officers? Just because, like you said, I don't know if anybody else could really have brought that. I'm a cop, I've seen this all a thousand times before, yeah, and this, this guy is frankly a bit weird for being so this, excited about yeah, a murder. This professional, this professional exhaustion for Lakeith's, mm. uh, for Lieutenant El Elliot, which, well, Detective Lieutenant Elliot, and it's what I really like about his character is that he, all, he kind of serves as, in comedy terms, he serves as the straight man, but in this, he's very much the grounded, actual real-world detective within a world that's just a little bit more exaggerated or theatre. And I really like yeah. that because it, it sets a grounding precedent and it's because I want to talk about Lakeith a lot more is that Lakeith Stanfield brings a very strong foundation to this character in that he has just... he is He's one of the characters who is the most normal, but he still brings a great deal of light and he steals scenes and parts because of his loyalty to this character and the loyalty to the straight man kind of character. So then he continues to stand out even in a room full of boisterous and loud and vocal characters. And I think that's excellent and I think he does an amazing job at that. He really does bring this sort of refreshing normalcy almost because of how eccentric the family is, how they're all very rich and deceitful yeah. and dramatic and he's just like, okay, cut, yeah, okay, chill out, dude. Yeah. And, and like 
he'll he'll go by protocol and the standard way of doing things but then like Benoit kind of shoves a spanner into that but he'll continue to pursue the legal way of doing things and the right way of doing things all the all the way through and I think that's great and before we talk about Marta who I think we should definitely talk about early to finish the areas of the cops and detectives I think that Trooper Wagner played by Noah Segan I think he's a really good character in that he provides the exposition and background for characters when we don't have all the time to learn of them and I think that's I think in this film it does a great deal of exposition through really interesting and nice ways that don't feel like they bloat the film too much no yeah a lot of times you feel like they're pretty much just running a dry commentary of what's happened so far so they can get into the meat of the movie yeah it doesn't really feel like that in this film no absolutely me at least and i guess that's another reason that i love it because even when we were watching spirited away i believe it was which is one of my like treasured childhood films yes i was commenting on how it felt a little like they were just commenting on the story as it went along so yeah yeah one of the things that i really love about this is the exposition really never takes me out of the version of the film and i think what is really great about that is they do it in a very reasonable way and in in a sense because wagner is a fan of harlan thromby's work and by extension the family he knows about the family's history because he's he's kind of a super fan and as a result he actually presents exposition in a way that actually feels natural and i think that's genuinely a really difficult thing to do and a very difficult thing to do well but this film does both of those incredibly well. Surprisingly, yeah, it hits yeah. the nail on the head for providing natural exposition. Yeah, and I think outside of that, his character doesn't serve a whole lot of purpose, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. In the real world, you don't necessarily you're not necessarily going to be the hero every every single story, so that's fine. And I think that makes a lot of sense. But now getting on to Marta Cabrera, played by Anna Diarmas, she's. Harlan's nurse and ultimately I think to avoid getting too complicated with the explanation she is definitely the main character. Yeah she's the the de facto main character for of course if there are sequels that are going to be coming out focusing on Benoit solving Mm. other mysteries he's more the main character but she would be more of the main character. Yeah, for lack of, like you said, making it more complicated, but, she's the focus of the Yeah, she's the, the focus point, yeah, and as a result, because she's basically not the heart of the mystery, that would definitely be Harland, but she is the key to unlocking it in many ways, and as a result, she, and I hope this is actually how the sequels kind of follow the same pace, is that she, without her, this mystery can't be solved, even with Benoit. And she's almost like the key. Yeah, she's integral. She's integral to the success of the mystery. Mm-hmm. She's key to the solving of it. I think there's a specific line where Benoit is going on about the donut. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know... A mystery that seems for the most part to be solved but there's a hole in the center there's, yeah, hole. and yeah so it's exactly she's the missing piece almost like without yeah. it you couldn't get the full story in a sense of symbolism absolutely but as a character i think she is just wonderfully great because she definitely encompasses this narrative or perspective that being kind doesn't make you necessarily weak or a doormat or anything like that and she is definitely a very kind caring and compassionate character but she's also never spineless as well as as a protagonist and will go out of her way to ensure that I guess that she doesn't get caught because she doesn't want her mother being deported and her family being separated as a big motivator for her covering up certain aspects of the mystery. Now, I did want to ask actually of you, do you think that she's a passive character or do you Um, think that she's sort of taking the reins a bit in her own fate during the that's, movie. That's quite complicated, but that's I it's a good question, absolutely, but I feel like I can't give a simple answer to that. In a sense, I think yes, because she goes out of her way to pursue covering up information or figuring out who's blackmailing her in the second half of the film. But there's also definitely evidence where, of course, the spoiler, as we're going to get to it, Harlan, when Harlan slits his own throat and makes his murder appear more like a suicide, she's 
more pushed towards doing what Harlan wants, and she doesn't seem as active there. But Which also, is exactly why I thought it was such an interesting question. Here's the thing: the, she's almost forced into it, but she commits. <laughs> yeah, but there's also like the same kind of thing can be said that she accidentally injects too much morphine into him, and that's kind of an active setting of the crisis. So mm. it's it's a little tough to say. I would say yes, yeah, she is an active character because she does go out of her way to engage in the story's progression. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to active or passive characters, it's not necessarily a one situation thing. It doesn't necessarily, you don't necessarily end up being a passive character if you don't instigate the call to adventure. Mm. But it also doesn't make you necessarily an active character if you only once take action right at the end of the crisis or as you say or as you believe. So yeah, but I would say that she is active because so much of the film is dedicated to her pursuing in for progression a penny, of the in for plot. A pound. Yeah, pretty much, yeah, exactly. And I like that because it's no human being is always going to be active, no human being is always going to be passive passive. It's a very realistic but also enjoyable depiction. And that is one thing that I will say about the characters as a whole, is even though they're depicted as very rich and eccentric, yeah. not one of them feels unrealistic in their characterization. Yeah, they all feel like, like people. Yes, yeah, ridiculously evil. weird people, yeah. but they still feel like people. They still exist within the realms of reality, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think that's a perfect opportunity to jump to the eldest daughter of the Harlands, Jamie Lee Curtis's Linda Drysdale. I love Linda. She's great. She's so fucking good. I think I I really like Jamie Lee Curtis ever since I first saw her in True Lies. I think she's just so cool. In real life, she's also super, super nice and wonderful. So it's nice to see her play a character who is just a straight up bitch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For lack of a better word. But she also has this very clear sense. And it's what I'll talk about with the members of the, the, the Thrombies. Is that they all have a very familial set of links or they appear familial within their circle because they're family and it's a really nice bit of characterization where you can definitely see that linda is just like her dad very commanding and clear-headed yeah almost cutthroat in the way that she doesn't take she doesn't take any bullshit she's very definitely and you even see this at the very beginning when she's being interviewed where she goes, I'm not going to spill secrets. I know exactly what you're trying to get out of me and it's not going to happen. Like, yeah. she she knows what's happening. She's not someone that you can push around. Yeah, and by extension, her husband is... A, uh, Richard Drysdale is just a bit of a dingus compared <sighs> compared to it. But He's it's an interesting... played so kind of, well because oh, yeah. I hate him so much. <laughs> yeah, he, he kind of plays this, like, very... Sleazy is a bad word, but it also does definitely fit. But, like, just a real douche at parts but then also very clearly it will his character makes sense and by extension he is he's not a thromby he married into the family and with that known it's also very clear that he doesn't carry a lot of the familial traits but in that same vein i find it quite interesting that michael shannon's walt doesn't have the same level of cutthroatedness as linda he's almost more squirrely yeah exactly and he, and when he tries to act in a way that his sister or his father would he fails and it's because he doesn't match up with his combatant or enemy and yeah. Then, yeah, and then he has to fall back into squirrely, weaselly kind of territory. And it's quite interesting to watch in terms of like a character study or a personality study. I think there's definitely a lot to look at with the Thrombies just exclusively. Yeah. Growing up in obviously such a strong-willed family and being less strong-willed yeah. than those around you. I think this even shows in the sort of faux manipulation tactic that he tries yeah. with Marta towards the sort of third... Yeah, the, the blackmailing of, of her yeah, the blackmailing. finding out that her mother is He doesn't is outright talking. say anything that could be implicated against him, which is smart, but it also goes to the point where if Linda was saying it, Linda would probably just say it. Yeah, and she probably would have had a better, a more profitable effect. Yeah, exactly, where he sort of edges around it and gives Martha the ability almost to rebut him. 
Yeah, and as a result, he ends up almost inadvertently losing whatever kind of support uh, Marta was going to give. Her, yeah, 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 yeah. And like, because I don't want to spend too much time in the in depth just talking about characters, but a lot of the characters who aren't necessarily married into the family, and I will by extension also include the grandkids of Harlan in this conversation because they're now like second generation away from Harlan they have this clear detachment from that that trait that series of traits with the cunning and the intelligence and things like that all yeah that's except, definitely a disconnect there yeah all except Ransom who is so much like Harlan in many ways that it's it becomes it becomes part of the plot yeah it becomes part of the plot and it's very scary and without talking too much about it until we start talking about story and stuff I really love that Ransom at first through the interviews is never introduced Mm -hmm. He's only mentioned and alluded to and I find that really really nice because the first moment we actually get to see Harlan is when at the will reading where he comes back but we never we're given like a momentary introduction and we're almost eased into the sense that he's alluded to but never actually introduces himself in the same way that in the interviews he kind of like passes through them and then when he's first show he when he first shows up in the house in real time he just passes by the detectives and goes into the main room yeah truly could not give a rat's ass about yeah the legal proceedings happening around him he is just there to sow chaos and i also find it quite interesting from a character standpoint that linda is the one in the film of course there is a third child yeah a third child of harland who is an yeah is an off-screen character as he's not around so we don't know how his characterization is but we do know what his daughter is like yes yeah absolutely Mm-hmm. So seeing that Linda, who is the most like her father and yeah. the most has the most idealized version of her father out of yeah. all of these family members, she's produced... also the only one we see mourn her father. Yeah, which is very interesting. Besides, of course, Martha, but she yeah, but she's not is not related to anybody. Yeah, biologically related. But the it's interesting to me that ransom is her child out of all of them yeah but also does make a lot of sense because you get in a weird way it's in terms of genetics or not even genetics but like environment you get harland and then his daughter who is almost exactly like him but just a little bit not and then Mm. the next one down is ransom who is just like his mother but just a little bit not and by extension that could lead to almost being a circular motion of being just like Harland but not. Yeah, I just really like the characterization. It feels realistically like what you would get. Yeah, absolutely. And it's genuinely really good characterization and super fun to see to see Chris Evans play a character who is just... Unhinged. Well, not unhinged, just an arsehole, but also a likeable arsehole. And I think that's yeah. the very interesting thing is that you can't take away charisma from Chris Evans. No. <laughs> you can't You can't seem to remove his charisma. He's always got it, even if he's playing an arsehole. And he's played an arsehole before because he was in Scott Pilgrim. But he is just... Like, you can still just get this feeling that you're just like, I still kind of like this guy, even after he, uh, spoilers, is revealed to be the killer. You still kind of like him. You still you still find him endearing. Yeah, like, strange, he, he of course, fun. we said that there would be spoilers. He turns out to be the killer, yeah. and then immediately is outed of being the killer, and his first reaction is, well, I'm this far in, yeah, may, as may as well go, go the whole way. way, and immediately tries to murk Marta right there and then. Yeah. Which is almost part of his charisma is that he made this decision and by god is he going to stick with it oh yeah absolutely and it's also this sense that it very much in the thromby way they follow through mm-hmm. and it's it's great that it remains consistent even in the like in a weird sense even in the even in the realms of murder it remains consistent and i guess that's the best kind of like compliment i can provide to just how consistent the characters are and how consistently they're written is that if you had a character who was so sure they were going to lose absolutely everything and that they were absolutely certain to follow through then they would follow through with stuff like that mm-hmm. so yeah it's great it's absolutely great if he really thought that he was going to go to jail and had no options left mm. i too would just full-on commit Commitment. May as well. It's a weird thing to admit, Monique. Never get on my bad side, William. Because you're not a movie <laughs> character. No, I'm not. 
I've been on your bad side before and I've not died, so I feel that I'm probably okay. You haven't been on my bad side. You've annoyed me, but that's just what friends do. Sure, but with that <laughs> said, I think we'll jump from characters to something else. Maybe we'll talk more broadly about set design and the cinematography, which I wanted to kind of touch on because I... Speaking on set yeah. design... Yes. I really, really liked the explanation you had of in those first interview scenes where we're introduced to the characters, yes. the lighting effect that was on Linda's oh, glasses. Right. Yeah, so in the interviews. Please do tell us. Yeah, in the interviews, I think one thing I can say before we even before I explain this, but in the interviews, well all the lighting is incredibly well done and is all very incredibly intentional and perfect example of this is during the interview uh, during the family interviews of the events surrounding the death of Harlan Thromby, there's consistent and really nice natural looking lighting throughout and it only in Linda's interview do we actually get a full picture of the effort that the crew went to to make that so consistent. So in the house, and this isn't my pointless research, if you couldn't tell from the tone of my voice but... <laughs> But, You're so monotone, how would they tell? Well, you know, I think I have a different cadence when I talk pointless research, but anyway. You're all excited about it. In the mansion, you ha they have these very specific window frames that have slatted supports and, you know, like normal windows do, but a little bit more pronounced and tall. Mm-hmm. And... They're consistent across both sides of the wall. So to emulate this look, because the crew would have had a great amount of gear, you know, dollies, cameras, tripods, all in that space where the light would, well, the light from the window on the other side would be, they built a mimic light in the room and then diffused it very strongly so that it would bounce in the same way that the actual window would in that scene if there were no people in that or if there was no crew and camera and stuff in that space and the only time we can see it is with Linda because she wears glasses and you see in in the reflection of her glasses you see the slatted panes of light which is such a nice little addition and so needless ultimately because if you don't notice it in the reflection of her glasses you don't notice it at all but it's so nice to do and it just goes to show the level of effort that has been put into this film even in the smallest ounces and what i find really nice outside of that specific lighting is that the lighting at night is loyal to realism but while still being stylized and so can to ex you explain that yeah so to explain that because i feel like that's a very vague thing to say a little bit of an uh, oxymoron there. Yeah. Well, it's... So, using the stylized kind of exterior lighting, which is usually a little more tungsten than it is LED or fluorescent or cold, you get a nice kind of golden or almost red lighting and diffusion on characters. So that's very realistic, but also not necessarily ideal for someone who wanted to make a very stylized kind of film. Mm. But in an attempt to continue to make it realistic they continue to use that dark kind of tungsten lighting for exterior lighting shots but then also allowed for the shadows to be as dark as they would naturally be and one of these great scenes is where Marta goes outside and Benoit is outside waiting for her and having having a cigarette mm. and you can't see Benoit in the shadow it's also a very nice kind of bond moment because he does that quite consistently in the movies but he's sitting in the darkness and it's consistently dark where if you genuinely look at the shadows in that scene you can't see shit and that's because that's a very realistic lighting setup in other films they would actually have a diffusion or even just another light lighting up the shadows so that they still look like shadows of course but are so much more well so much more illuminated that they still provide detail because you don't really necessarily want to lose detail in your film yeah, because he almost seems, for lack of a better term, cell shaded to me. Like they yeah. just so that's hard cut lighting. Off. Yeah, yeah. So that's hard, not hard diffusion, but it's hard shadows, and you can notice that in. So if you want to ever notice or look at uh, light diffusion and light shadows, or hard shadows and hard diffusion, the easiest way to tell is if is how soft the shadowing is on a person's face. So in this, it's very hard diffusion and hard lighting. 
where it almost seems like you've basically run a sharpie or a black marker across Daniel Craig's face. Yeah, you've almost outlined where the shadow would be yeah, and then just much. filled it with a bucket tool. Yeah, and I think that's a very ballsy move because sharp hard lighting on faces is rarely flattering as mm. well. So I think it's a really impressive and ballsy kind of move to go with that kind of lighting style because it pays off really, really well because it feels real and honest but also has this very lovely, subtle style to it that continues to make the film really wonderful to watch and look at. Mm -hmm. With all that said, the nighttime shots are purposeful, but they don't necessarily go out of their way to be stylistic as well. And it's, yeah. it's so that they can present this it's so that they can present this image of realism, and I really, really like that. But in the same vein, there's also a really awesome scene that I wanted to talk about as well. That Why yes. That continues to push realism, but wins the lottery in that sense, because it also gets to provide stylization, and it's during the morning walkthrough of the events of... Well, the morning walkthrough with Benoit and Marta and the and uh, the other detectives of the grounds, and there's this perfect layer of fog and condensation in the air, which, if you don't know, this is, like, the best fucking thing you can get for cinematography stylization if you want to go with a more elusive and mystery-based kind of imagery, because it adds a great deal of texture to the screen and to the frame, as well as yeah. also providing mm -hmm. a great deal of depth while removing depth because you actually can't see further than it. And it's because of the use of, of lighting texture, because when light passes through fog or through smoke or through dust, it builds this particle effect that adds so much more detail into a frame because there are these little, little particles that reflect light. And this walk through the grounds is a really good example of that because it uses that perfectly with the morning fog and then also the morning lighting to provide this great deal of depth in a scene that doesn't necessarily need it but has been enhanced all the more because it's there. You can just tell the people who worked on this really had passion for it because they're adding yeah. in all of these details that truly don't, for lack of a better phrasing, they don't affect the film in many ways like no. yes they're adding to the ambiance and the style and the vibe no. of the film it's giving off very this mysterious aura which is what you want for a murder mystery but if they hadn't added them the storyline and the beats and all of the clues that are there would still hit the same this is just the you know icing on top it's yeah absolutely and i would say this so is nice. kind of yeah, I think this is a kind of perfect opportunity to talk about my pointless research in that there is so much going on behind it and little things that people did or changed about it that only really enhanced the film in multiple different ways. So this week I went a little more light on the, tr on the research by looking up some behind-the-scenes trivia, some fun kind of facts about it because I also think that learning about stuff behind the scenes is quite interesting and I don't have to get quizzed on anything. Exactly, not this week. <laughs> and I thought I thought it'd be a nice little thing to do because if you have watched the film and you enjoyed it, because most people did, it got like a 97 on Rotten Tomatoes, so most people did like it. If you didn't, you're in the minority and you're not going to be welcome here, sorry. But <laughs> I'm a, I'm a come you to are, your house. You are, don't worry. <laughs> you are welcome here. I don't like films either sometimes, but I don't like good films either sometimes. But... <laughs> With this all said, it's also really nice to learn stuff, learn about stuff behind the scenes. Personally, I really enjoy it because it's just a little bit of fun and you can bring it out in at parties and stuff and then people will know that you're a loser. So, <laughs> no, I'm only joking. People will know that you're well-educated. Anyway, so behind the scenes, this is kind of random little facts, but Christopher Plummer, the actor who plays Harlan Thromby, which isn't rare, sometimes that does happen, but I did find it quite interesting that the woman who plays Harlan's mother is actually younger than the man who played Harlan. Huh. We're, yeah, it's just a bit... It's just a little just bit... Just because of the characterization, I think, is what makes it so interesting. Yeah. Is and just how not... much more yeah. senile she is. Yeah, absolutely. As a character. And I, I would say that's definitely a really nice you know, a bit of work in acting because she may, she plays that off really well and you could say, oh, she's just a she's playing a senile old, senile old woman, that's not hard to do. You fucking try it then. 
And it, it's the kind of thing I, w I do say about acting is that it's just like, oh, well, they played a terrible character. And it's like, you try and play that character. If it's poorly written, then you're going to suck too. And in this case, she's not poorly written. She barely has any lines, but she does them great. Mm -hmm. Anyway, moving on. So it was actually Don Johnson's idea to hand Marta the plate during the arguing about immigration. And Don Johnson thought it would be a really good idea to depict the detachment from Marta as a member of the family and more as a member of the kind of furniture in the house if he did it in a way that he almost doesn't even acknowledge her yeah, and uses her as a talking feels... point for his argument, which was about immigration. It does feel like he's just going, here, take this plate with you and help me prove my point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like bring to bring her here and, oh, while you're here, why don't you take this plate and put it in the dishwasher while, while you're doing it? But anyway, so you may have noticed at the start during the interviews, Benoit always tapped a piano key. Mm -hmm. And... It's never explicitly said why he does that, but I have the answer here. So Benoit taps the piano key to signal to Lieutenant Elliot to ask when the members of the family arrived at the house. So every time he hits the key, Lieutenant Elliot asks that question of the family member that they are talking to, which I find a really interesting way of remain well providing a consistency with the interviewing, but also nicely unnoticeable. But yeah, yeah. yeah. It's then also it, nice that there's, like, an in-law explanation for it. Yeah. It wasn't just a, and I'm notifying my presence in the most mysterious way possible. Yeah, it's great because it's, it's, you can figure that out if you do a bit of thinking. You could always do some background reading or whatever, but it doesn't necessarily require background reading. Just like if, like, it would be really annoying if the answer to that question was in a book somewhere. I am slightly mocking something that Ryan Johnson did in a different film, but we will talk about that when we talk about that film. Anyway. I don't know what the film is. Exactly. You're going to have to wait until we review it. I don't even know what the reference is to. <laughs> exactly. You're going to have to wait until we review the film. Anyway. Well, Jayden, so the next it. one. Jaden Martell ad-libbed the line, You had sex with my grandpa, you dirty little anchor baby, that he says to Marta when they find out that she inherits everything. Yep. And originally, my uh, this line was kind of hidden beneath the shoutings and ramblings of the family as they're like shouting and arguing with Marta. However, Michael Shannon noticed him say that and asked Ryan Johnson to make sure that they got a clear version of that because he actually thought that was a really good line. Which which I find really interesting. It's also really nice of Michael Shannon to do that, I think. Yeah, oh, yeah. Know. Like, obviously, he heard it and he goes, hmm, actually, that suits your character. That's definitely yeah. something he would say. Put, put it, it put in. in the forefront, yeah. And I, I, it's a good line. But for Jaden, who is quite a young actor, that might have that must have been so like gratifying yeah within a certain bound i think to be completely fair with him it also may have been quite a confronting thing to say of course to yeah. be fair it to would have him. been incredibly <laughs> yeah. confronting to shout and then it's like i liked that make sure you get yeah, it for the to, proper to cut. he's a, like oh my gosh yeah to have an everybody's Oscar gonna hear me say that to say i like that line let's get you to say it again you know but moving on so blank's blank's accent was actually based on a historian Shelby, Shelby Forte, who had a deep southern accent with a slight whistling lisp, which I found quite interesting that it's actually based on someone. That's super cute. Yeah. Moving on, Michael Shannon improvised the line, I ain't eating one iota of shit, which I think is really fucking funny. It's so funny. <laughs> because during the scene where Ransom is telling people to, members of his family to eat shit, he go, and right at the end he goes, I ain't eaten one, one iota of shit, which I find incredibly funny because it's just such a random response. It's, it, for you it's a random response. For me it's exactly what happens when your kid says something and you're yeah. not... 100% aware yeah. of how to deal with it so you just go oh no but it just comes off being stupid I love it so much yeah uh, Knives Out led to Anna Diarmas being cast in the next James Bond film No Time to Die so she plays a Cuban agent in that and it's because Daniel Craig found that they had great chemistry on set and he wanted her in it which is awesome really good for her career honestly mm -hmm. uh, the titular patriarch who dies in this film is actually a reference to a a choose-your-own-adventure mystery novel called Who Killed Harlow Thromby? So Harlow Thromby is based, well, not based, but a reference to Harlow Thromby from that choose-your-own-adventure novel. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I thought you'd find that quite interesting. I do. I kind of want to read the novel now. <laughs> Give it a, yeah. It has nothing to do with this movie, but ultimately I 
think it's still it's quite well reviewed. So if it's a murder mystery esque novel and it's choose your own adventure, yeah. I'm sure it would be very good. Yeah, the next one, which I found out quite recently, but is quite interesting. The voice of the TV detective that Marta is listening to at the start of the film on her laptop is a character by the name of Detective Hardock, whom is voiced by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who you may know from The Dark Knight Rises or many other films. If, you, if you're if you a kid of the 90s, you'll also probably know him from Third Rock from the Sun. A very famous actor who was also in Looper, which was Ryan Johnson's earlier film. And originally, he was meant to have a larger part within this film, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I mean. But his schedule ended up conflicting with production, so he ended up just voicing one line within the film as a detective on a TV show that Marta watches. And Such a shame. Yeah, and of course, my final little piece of trivia and fun fact. If you don't know, people who don't know, the solicitor of Harlan's will is played by Frank Oz, who hopefully many of you will know as the voice and puppeteer for Miss Piggy, Fozzie Bear, and Yoda, with also a special mention that he was the puppeteer, voice, and hands of the Swedish chef. Such an iconic voice. Yes. Yeah, so he is a... Puppeteer and the voices of many famous characters, which I found very interesting and very nice that he has a part in this, a, a human role in this, which is great. He gets to be an actor instead gets, of a puppeteer. Yeah, it's always nice. But moving on, so do we want to kind of draw out the final section of our episode with just talking about the story? Yeah, to specifically narrow in on a part of the story. Absolutely. Of course, there is a lot of use of foreshadowing in this, and yeah. there's, in my opinion, there's more than one Chekhov's gun. Oh yeah, there um, absolutely is. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to know what is your favorite, or if not favorite, the most standout Chekhov's gun so, slash piece of foreshadowing this film. So to answer your question, I want to actually first ask you that question. Specifically <gasps> because I feel that my example is going to be a little more subtle. In depth than mine. <laughs> no no no, not, not in depth. A little more subtle and I don't like I'm would be interested if you actually caught it, but I wouldn't be surprised if you did either, but I wanted to ask you first because you love this film and I think you would probably have a better recollection of a lot of the f- mm-hmm. the foreshadowing used, so I want to ask I you I actually first. have two. Yeah, One absolutely. is more of a scene, which of course is when they believe that Marta has given Harland too much morphine yeah. and they're listing all the symptoms and how it's already been eight minutes and yeah. then you can just he's not sweating like there's nothing yeah, he's there absolutely fine. I, first I picked it up the first time I watched the movie like I mm. genuinely was so fixated like on it question, yeah. I really really loved it and I also love the baseball I don't know sports. yes it is baseball yep yes. yep and just how it is such an innocuous thing that keeps recurring and almost helping to push the narrative forward. I really, really like that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's what is really great about the baseball more specifically is that it leads to Linda learning about her husband's affair because she knows her father and she knows that this baseball goes in his office. He, she knows that it goes in his office yeah, when she finds it. Yeah, it sits in a it. specific spot in his office. And when she goes to return it there, the note is there. She also knows that the note is sealed with invisible ink. Yeah. Or not mm-hmm. sealed, but hidden with invisible it's, ink. Yeah, written in invisible ink because that's the code they used to play. Yeah, I like that the ball is not just... Well. Yeah, I love that the, the baseball isn't just that as well, but it's yeah. also something that Benoit is shown playing with. And then when the yeah. dog comes up with that piece of trellis, yeah. he chucks the ball for them to grab and goes hang on, what did you yeah. leave behind? But so I just, I really like that it literally is just a baseball that yeah, it has progresses no, the story. Yeah, No special magic properties. It's just a baseball, but it has a very important position within the household, which is great. It also, it also introduces a lot of consistency within the film, such as it sits in, his, in Han's office and allows Linda to learn of her husband's affair, but then also it sets up that the dogs will return anything in the yard. Mm-hmm. And as a result, it brings Benoit, who has thrown the ball for them, the trellis piece. They're good boys. And then They're also leads up to the understanding that the dogs are very consistent as well and that they bark at people who are unfamiliar to them, hence why they bark at Ransom when he returns to the house, but they don't bark at Marta. 
when she returns to the house because she is from Holland's perspective a member of the family and genuinely a member of the family mm-hmm. yeah. because dogs do not lie and I think Benoit says something akin to that and it's like a good or that they're an excellent judge of yeah, judge of a character. good judge of character is a dog because they can always see the good in people and all that stuff my favourite bit of my favourite depiction of Chekhov's gun is actually in Detective Elliot and Trooper Wagner in that they record every single interview. And you see that. You see them start the record button on their phone when they record an interview. In the final confession, where Ransom basically gives away that he overdosed Harlan and then also did the exact same thing to the Fran. He did the same thing to Fran but in an actual more sinister and intentional way. Uh, Lieutenant Elliot is recording and it's because you know that they record every single interview. Mm, I did like that. I did notice it's that. It's great and it, and it holds this consistency within the film which is excellent because as genuine real world cops they would do that mm-hmm. and it i like this film because it does have a lot of spoken rules yeah. that we the viewer knows about but it also has a lot of more shown or unspoken rules such as the baseball belonging in the office and the trip that the baseball makes around the house being specifically because everybody goes hang on this isn't yeah. supposed to be here and the fact that they are recording, they show us that they record all of the interviews or yeah. any information about the case, mm. for then it to be such an integral part of getting the confession later on. Like, I just really yeah. like the consistency and the yeah. adherence to their own in-world yeah, rules. Absolutely. And I think the kind of the use of foreshadowing imagery is really great because, of course, we have this big piece of foreshadowing imagery, this huge, like, wall of knives that never gets filled until right at the end once the donut hole is filled. Oh, the halo. The halo. It's great because it's just a really nice way of visually wrapping up the story. Also, another nice bit of visually wrapping up the story is Harlan's picture or portrait where He's kind of not scowling, but definitely seems to be like almost grimacing during the film. And then he, when once the mystery is all wrapped up, he's smiling. Yeah, he seems quite severe or yeah, almost pointed it, in yeah. the picture. And then mm. at the end, he seems satisfied or yeah, absolutely at peace. Yeah. Almost. What I oh also a really nice bit of like and I want to just move on slightly only like incrementally to the consistent character Chekhov's gun use. So of course we have Marta and her vomiting at lies and she's consistently doing that throughout the film where if she tells a lie she's like holding it in and discom and showing visible signs of discomfort and then has to vomit somewhere and it's mm-hmm. or in something or on something or whatever. And it's a bit, it's a bit like plot convenient, I will admit, but it is also because the film doesn't take itself seriously, and I talked about this in the review, it doesn't take itself so seriously that this is weird yeah, or too convenient. It's, it's allowed to be a little ridiculous yeah. because everybody, and this, I suppose this is why it's such a fun film for me, is because mm. it doesn't think that it's this amazing, like, murder mystery, noir yeah. piece. It's like, we made a murder mystery film, and we had a dang good time doing it one of the main characters throws up every time she lies is that plausible probably not is it fun heck yes yeah and it and of course as as a result it allows her to be the one depiction of truth within this field of dishonesty and maybe lack of information but one thing i did actually want to talk about and i found quite interesting is that Harlan Thromby is always calm and collected, even when dealing with his family, where he is slowly starting to cut them off while he's alive anyway, because he feels that he's made a mistake with them. But Uh then more so very clearly and more clearly indicated is that when he realizes that he's been overdosed, but in a way that he knows that Marta isn't actually responsible and she didn't make a mistake, it was clearly like switched. Uh, he almost shows excitement at the possibility of being murdered, and it's because yeah. he's a best-selling crime novelist, and he got his and he almost has. He's always this... had a fascination with the macabre. Yeah, but it's also well, not even that, but it's almost a sense that he spent his life writing murder mysteries, and he's gonna die at the hands of a murderer, and it's almost exciting to him because it almost feels like. 
like this holistic circularization of his life and he thinks it's it's almost a perfect way for him to go out mm-hmm. and I find that really really interesting and it makes him such a compelling character because though morbid and macabre some people probably wouldn't be scared or terrified in moments like this where they realize that they're going to die especially if you're a lot older and I find his character incredibly interesting to watch because he has that fascination and that passion to mystery that mm, mm-hmm. he he gets to go out in a way that he's not going to know who his killer was. But it's such an interesting and compelling mystery for him that he's almost happy that he doesn't get to find out. He even mentions it as Marta is panically looking yeah. for the antidote. Yeah. Antidote? That was uh, a weird yeah, way that's to say that. That's a word to use. Yeah, less questioning the word and more the way that I said it. But <laughs> even when she's panically looking through the bag to find something to reverse what she's done, he's writing down notes and he's like, so if someone had switched this on purpose and he's yeah. even... He's taking notes. What he possibly believes to be a mistake on Marta's yeah. part is even turning that into a mystery. And then when she says it has to be here because it comes with the kit, he's immediately like, oh, I'm going to die here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. it is definitely very interesting to to watch. Mm -hmm. But with that said, I think we should probably get to our final thoughts. Do you have any kind of like... I suppose. ...questions or things you want to get more in-depth, want to talk about more in-depth while we can? I guess... It's interesting to me, of course, we've spoken a little bit about how you could feel the passion that was put into this project. And I really did want to say, is there a specific way that you see the difference between someone being passionate about what they're acting or making versus, say, something that they're more doing because they have to, because they've been paid to, not something that their yeah. heart so is in? I talk about I talked about it in the review, but I might I might give it a little more credence and specificity in this. You know I love to hear you speak. But, weird thing to say. Um, but, no, it's not. It's all good. Basically, with as a exa- perfect example of this, Ryan Johnson, he previously before this movie, he made Star Wars The Last Jedi, which was a film that a lot of people didn't like, especially people who are big fans of it, and I'm not ne- not necessarily saying either either side is right or wrong in this situation because ultimately films are made for various reasons for various audiences and all that kind of jazz but for Ryan Johnson it definitely wasn't a film that he necessarily made or came up with himself it was a film that had been lined up from the previous one The Force Awakens and then the intention for the final one The Rise of Skywalker and as a result you're kind of pushed into a box where you have to make a film that has a great deal of history behind it and then also has a great deal of following behind it and if you make a film in this series in a series like that where it's divisive but a good 50-50 then you've probably made a good version of it however for The Last Jedi and absolutely for The Rise of Skywalker it was more 80 20 and as a result the percentage of people who liked it were in the minority and as a result you don't necessarily make a good film just because it has just because the franchise has a great deal of pedigree behind it i think we see that a lot more recently in a lot of the marvel films as well is that you get really great directors behind it and they might not make great films and then people blame the filmmaker and i don't think it's ryan johnson's fault that he made the last jedi or anything like that but it's also very clear and visible that when making Knives Out, it was actually a film that he was passionate about, and as a result, it's fucking great. Mm -hmm. And then in the same vein with Daniel Craig, Daniel Craig had a very controversial history with Bond, and definitely the first one he enjoyed, second one to a lesser degree, and then to the third one, he felt that he didn't want to play Bond ever again, and I'm not going to use his words because ultimately they're quite heavy, but he definitely did not want to play Bond again. And then after that, as you know, there are two more Bond films that come after the third one with him in it. And mm-hmm. But it's also so wonderful and refreshing to see him play a character that he actually really wants to play and genuinely enjoys. And in this vein, I think the biggest lesson that you can learn from Knives Out is that 
if you're a filmmaker, no matter what area of filmmaking you do, if, whether it be sound design, directing, cinematography, set design, costume design, acting, anything, do what you love because it is so much more important than doing what the world enjoys. Because they're not you, you're not going to be able to necessarily make everything that something that everyone enjoys make something that you enjoy. And as a result, an audience who are like-minded people will love it. Mm -hmm. That being said, on the complete opposite end of the scale, don't be afraid of making bad films either. Because you're allowed to make bad films. You can make films that nobody likes. And if you don't like it, then ultimately, you're in the majority. And there's this <laughs> film that nobody likes that you made, but you're also like, hey, I didn't really like it. Boom. Easy. But don't, but always kind of, I think it's always kind of important to be honest with your intentions and what you want to do. Because just because you're a good director or anything, cinematographer, what have you, and then someone goes, hey, you should make a Marvel film or a Star Wars film or a Bond film or, or a Harry Potter film. You don't have to say yes if it's not something you actually want to do and you should make, and it's just so much more important to make what you love. Yeah, than yeah. Then make what other people love. And yeah, that's what I think on it, honestly. Fair enough. Did you have any last final thoughts? I think I've pretty much gotten everything I wanted to out of my head, which is great because that's rare. I always feel like I have something left to say. I think I did definitely have critiques of this film and it's why I didn't give it a perfect score like you did. I think to be fair to the certain less experienced actors, they don't necessarily get a lot of screen time and as a result that kind of balances it out but there are definitely situations where where Jacob Thromby played by Jaden Martell and to a slightly greater degree Catherine Langford who played Meg Thromby I don't think that acting in this is necessarily very solid and I have talked to people about this and it's strangely more prevalent with Meg in that she's supposed to appear as a character who is a little difficult to read in her intentions because she's a rich girl who also studies social justice and and areas pertaining to that However, oh, no. her acting doesn't come across as elusive or deceptive. It comes across as confusing. And I don't necessarily think that's anyone's fault. I just think it's definitely weaker. And because you're surrounded by a great deal of strong actors and actresses, I think it becomes more and more highlighted. And so it's definitely not Catherine Langford's fault. But I just don't think that it's the best that we could have gotten out of it. And right, as a result, right. I find it a little bit weaker. And the same with Jaden Martell, but Jaden Martell is also a young man and he has very few lines to speak in this. So ultimately he gets kind of one shot at it. And if it's good enough, they're just like, sweet, on we go. And <laughs> ultimately that's, that's fine. And my other criticism, I basically counteracted that myself with Marta's vomiting. I was just like, it's very plot convenient, but then also who cares? It's a story that kind of doesn't take itself too seriously so what can you do other than complain and whinge on the internet because that's fun what we're doing <laughs> it's what we do we do have to be critical of films even if we like them it's fun to be crit and ultimately when it comes down to it you're allowed to enjoy whatever films you like even if we rip them to shreds because mm -hmm. and sometimes we rip films to shreds even though we really like them yeah absolutely and sometimes... I think that even we did that with Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark where we kept picking at it but yeah. really we both found it enjoyable despite all of the faults that we picked so yeah and sometimes with films that we hate or films that I specifically hate I'll say some nice things about it too mm -hmm. it's rare mm -hmm. but like I will <laughs> and because that's what good critics do but anyway I think we should wrap up definitely so... I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As always, if you've listened to this point, you get a little treat. You get a hint to the next episode. So so with last week's hint, which went from Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark to this film, Knives Out, it was another story where a, where a mystery unfolds around the death of a family member, seemingly at the hands of the family who had their beaks bloody at the feast, which is a line that Benoit Blanc says in the film, and interestingly enough, which I didn't include in my trivia, but that's actually the first time that Daniel Craig was on set, is that line and that scene where he actually shouts at the family, which is a very interesting time to start out. But yeah, anyway. that's okay, iconic. They've never seen what this actor is yeah. going to come in, and he comes in with this droll, just yeah. shouting. <laughs> it's very, a very interesting start to the to the production, anyway. But anyway, if you didn't get that, tough luck, tough shit. You know, just be better. <laughs> <laughs> 
but you get you get a chance to actually figure out the next hint. As always, we get we provide a next hint for the next film. So this one is another film where our hero feels like an outsider among very different people, but their behaviour towards such discontent is definitely given pause. <laughs> if you don't figure that out, that's rough. <laughs> have a few guesses at it ultimately let us know your guesses if you want to so if you want to reach out to us Monique is at Nexatai on both Twitter and Instagram I myself am at Greymouse Inc on Twitter and on Instagram I am at Will underscore Mortlock if you are precocious you can also find me in Fire Giggles' stream on Twitch and I am at Greymouse Inc there so ultimately if you want to chat to me in a less formal setting it's definitely there I, Look, we act a bit like a married couple in Google streams sometimes, yes. so, so you might be able to see us arguing in real time. <laughs> you might see that, and that would be, and I don't mind if you reach out to us there. If you want to reach out to Monique, do it on Twitter because she's more responsive there. I'm more responsive on Instagram. I also post a lot of my cinematography work up there, so please feel free to check it out and critique it because you will make me cry and on twitter <laughs> just silence and on twitter what what do you want me to say if someone makes you cry you better give me their bloomin username and i'll track them down and i'll <laughs> you fight them i can't handle criticism i spent four years just getting ripped into for all my work so don't worry and about i want to fight all. all of your teachers it doesn't matter they're right <laughs> <laughs> My work sucked at one point, and now it's okay. Anyway, well, yeah. if you want to check out Nexatai on Twitter, you'll actually see that she posts hint updates or hint refreshes every single Thursday, and also we post reminders on Fridays to check out the episodes. You can find them on either YouTube or even on Spotify, which is where I'm hoping more people go to, because I actually really prefer using Spotify. But either way, you do whatever you like. They'll, they'll be posted on both platforms every single week, so be sure to check them out. But with all that said, see you next week.